Today on Legalese, we are going to be talking about the judicial philosophy of progressive originalism, as well as discussing the junior associate justice of the Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is the court's first progressive originalist. And I will be talking about why I think she may be in a unique position to become one of the most influential members on the court. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me especially welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, real quick, I just want to remind you guys that if you want to learn more about the show or about me, you can go check out our homepage over at LegalEasePodcast.com. There you can get all kinds of updates about the show. Uh, you can find an archive of past episodes, get in contact with me, uh, support the show, buy my book, all kinds of cool shit you can do over there. And if you want to make sure you always get updates whenever I put out new content, because I put out content all over the web, I do videos on YouTube, I do a podcast version on Spotify, uh, and I do articles over on Substack. And if you want to uh, follow all of those, you just need to go to LegallyShow.com, and there you can subscribe to my newsletter, and you will get notifications whenever I post any new content anywhere. All right, well, we have a lot to get to today, so I want to just jump right in here. So as I mentioned off the top, we are going to be talking today about the judicial philosophy of uh, progressive originalism and the court's first justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and why I think she has the potential to become one of the most influential members of the court, and in fact, why I think that's maybe not a bad thing. But, but first, before we get to her, we need to discuss what progressive originalism is. Now, the first thing to note is that progressive originalism is not some kind of contradiction, as many originalists and many conservatives tend to think. And originalism is not a strictly conservative judicial philosophy, as many progressives and living constitutionalists tend to think. Now, I make no secret of the fact that I ascribe to the original understanding method of interpretation so, of course, I do disagree with aspects of progressive originalism. But I make that clear here at the beginning because I want to very consciously set that aside for now. Because, to begin, what I want to do here today is to provide you an objective and scholarly analysis of progressive originalism in a way that will fairly uh, let you make up your own mind about the value of this judicial philosophy just as I have done in the past with some of my videos on originalism and textualism. And this was actually, uh, somewhat to my surprise even, one of my most popular videos on this channel here. So uh, if you haven't seen this, that would be worth checking out. And that'll be linked, of course, over on the show notes page. Now, before we can define what progressive originalism is, we need a very quick refresher on what originalism is. Now, all modalities of originalism do 
share several fundamental features, and this will hold equally true whether we're talking about original intent, original public meaning, uh, original understanding, progressive originalism, and even textualism as well. And that is that they are derived from both a descriptive and a normative theory of interpretation known as legal formalism. Now, in its descriptive sense, formalists believe that judges reach their decisions by applying uncontroversial principles to the facts. And as a normative theory, formalists have the view that a judge should decide cases by the application of those uncontroversial principles to the facts. Now, for uh, originalists and textualists, these are manifested in two doctrines that we call the fixation thesis and the constraint principle. Now, what these refer to is the fact that the meaning of a text in a legal document is fixed at the time that it was drafted, and that any interpretation of that document should be constrained by that fixed meaning. Now, perhaps uh, the primary thought leader on progressive originalism uh, is the progressive legal think tank, the Constitutional Accountability Center, or, or as I'll be calling it, the CAC. Now, they have launched an internal project called Originalism Watch, where they distinguish between progressive originalism from what they call conservative originalism, by which what they actually mean is original public meaning. Though, for brevity's sake here today, I will simply be using the CAC's somewhat inaccurate terminology of conservative originalism, at least for the purposes of this video. Now, according to them, progressive originalism departs from the what they call conservative strain of originalism by shifting focus from the 18th century constitutional text to the three Reconstruction Amendments ratified after the Civil War. Now, they are, of course, referring specifically to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Now, Akhil Reed Amar, a Yale professor and one of our country's most notable progressive originalists, has said that viewed through the Reconstruction prism, the Constitution turns out to be way more liberal than conservative by applying methods blessed by conservatives to the neglected texts and forgotten framers of the Reconstruction Amendments. Liberals hope to deploy powerful new arguments to cement precedents under threat from the right and undergird the recognition of new rights. Now, Ketanji Brown Jackson has actually, in fact, confirmed uh, this notion that they are using what uh, Akhil Amar refers to as conservative methods, by which, of course, she means originalist methods. And in her uh, Supreme Court nomination hearing, uh, then Judge Jackson held that she does not believe there is a living constitution. And she recognized that the meaning of words in a legal instrument, such as the Constitution, have a fixed meaning, and that a judge should be constrained by that fixed meaning when interpreting the law. So here she is, in fact, very clearly reiterating the same point uh, earlier uh, in a hearing on April 28th of 2021 before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, for her confirmation to the prestigious U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which is often called the second highest court in the land. 
So uh, let me go back to the original question, which is, do, do you believe we have a, a living constitution? I believe that the constitution is an enduring document. It is, uh, it has, the Supreme Court has said um, a fixed meaning that we're to look to the original um, words in the constitution and interpret uh, as lower court judges would interpret provisions the way in which the Supreme Court does and they look at the text and look at the original meaning. And so if I ever had one of those cases, that is how I would uh, approach the task. So her statement there is a clear confirmation of her uh, interpretation as indeed employing both the fixation thesis and the constraint principle. Now, because of this, progressive originalists are, in the most fundamental sense, originalists. And just like Akhil Lamar, other progressive originalists, such as Lauren Solom, Jack Balkin, Bruce Ackerman, and Elizabeth Wydra, all contend that where they differ in their belief is that they say when it's done correctly, originalism points more often than not to progressive and not conservative outcomes. Now, their distinction between schools of originalism here is clearly a, dis a distinction of degrees and not of kinds. So Elizabeth Wydra of the CAC uh, has elaborated on this as saying, America's Constitution, in its most vital respects, is a progressive document written by revolutionaries and amended by we the people who prevailed in the most tumultuous social upheavals in the nation's history. She says the Reconstruction Republicans after the Civil War, which she refers to as our nation's second founding, as well as the progressives and the suffragists of the early 20th century, and of course the civil rights and student movements of the 1950s and 1960s, all successfully amended our Constitution to extend its rights to protect more Americans. She goes on to say that the reality is that originalism, which we can loosely define as looking to the actual text of the Constitution and the meaning of those words in the text at the time that they were ratified in order to help us resolve constitutional disputes, is not an inherently conservative method. And again, she is not wrong. Turning to the text is not in any way an inherently conservative method. Now, Wydra would go on to say that when we, uh, what we do when we talk about looking for the original meaning of the Constitution is that we start absolutely with the words and the facts is people wrote the Constitution and people ratified the Constitution too, in most cases set forth general principles that were broad enough to be applied throughout the arc of this country's history. Now, I believe this can best be demonstrated by looking at those places where so-called conservative originalists and progressive originalists reach precisely the same conclusion. And for me, really the quintessential example of this comes from the originalist interpretation of the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, the heart of this issue 
comes from several events that took place just a couple years after the 14th Amendment was ratified. And the Privileges or Immunities Clause was determined by the Supreme Court to be effectively a meaningless clause in two landmark cases of 14th Amendment jurisprudence. These were the Slaughterhouse Cases and U.S. v. Cruikshank. Now, all originalists recognize an intrinsic value to overturning Slaughterhouse and Cruikshank, which would allow us to return to an original meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, and that many of the fundamental rights that are currently incorporated under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause would actually be better and more accurately protected under the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which both groups of progressive and so-called conservative originalists see as a clause whose purpose was to protect fundamental enumerated and unenumerated rights. Now, I have made entire videos, plural. What's the problem? I haven't got a problem. I've got fucking problems. Plural. One way, Arguing their very point, uh, such as my video, the originalist privileges or immunities clause, which will be linked on the show notes page, uh, as well as giving this topic a significant amount of attention in other videos of mine about other topics that have some kind of 14th Amendment jurisprudential hook. Most notably, this comes about in many of my Second Amendment videos that we discuss. And this is where I believe this comparison gets really interesting because the most prominent example of this agreement by all camps of originalists has to do with the fundamental right to own arms for self-defense. This, despite the fact that there is actually no consensus among progressive originalists that the Second Amendment confers an individual right to keep arms for self-defense. Now, some reject a Second Amendment individual right, and others merely write it off as unimportant, because remember, they are originalists who favor a major focus on the Reconstruction Amendments. But there is actually a consensus among progressive originalists that the individual right, at least as it was elaborated in D.C. v. Heller, is incorrect. Now, the primary holding in Heller was that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes, such as self-defense within the home. Yet somehow, progressive originalists reach a strong consensus that the assertion of an individual right to own guns including for lawful self-defense, is protected by the 14th Amendment. So how can this be? I hear you asking me, and that is a great question. After all, the controlling precedent on this issue is, of course, the McDonald v. Chicago case, which says that the 14th Amendment's individual right comes from a selective incorporation of the Second Amendment as against the states by way of the Due Process Clause, uh, a.k.a. Substantive Due Process. So how does what is to them a militia right become an individual self-defense right? Well, plainly put, it doesn't. And this is why 
the living constitutionalists on the court in the McDonald case would conclude that the 14th Amendment does not interact protect an individual right for lawful purposes such as self-defense because to them, the Second Amendment doesn't provide an individual right for self-defense. So for progressive originalists, they instead recognize self-defense and gun ownership each as fundamental individual rights protected by the 14th Amendment through the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Now, I have made this same argument before, in fact, many times, uh, from an original public meaning perspective. So today for this video to mix it up, I am going to be reaching the very same conclusion relying solely on the scholarship of noted progressive originalist Akhil Amar. So Amar begins by pointing out that after the Civil War, many of the over 180,000 African Americans who served in the Union Army returned to the states of the old Confederacy, where systematic efforts were made to disarm them and other blacks and the laws of some states formally prohibited African Americans from possessing firearms. For example, a Mississippi law provided that, quote, no freedman, free Negro, or mulatto, not in the military service of the United States government, and not licensed so to do by the board of police of his or her county shall keep or carry firearms of any kind, or any ammunition, dirk, or bowie knife, end quote. Now, Amar goes on to talk about how throughout the South, armed parties, often consisting of ex-Confederate soldiers serving in the state militia, forcibly took firearms from newly freed slaves. Now, the Union Army commanders would take steps to secure the rights of all citizens to keep and bear arms, but the 39th Congress concluded that legislative action was necessary, and its efforts to safeguard the right to keep and bear arms would demonstrate that this right was still recognized to be fundamental. Now, Amar points out that the most explicit evidence of Congress's aim appears in Section 14 of the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866, which provides that, quote, the right to have full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, and the acquisition, enjoyment, and disposition of a state, both real and personal, including the constitutional right to bear arms, shall be secured to and enjoyed by all the citizens without respect to race or color or previous condition of slavery, end quote. And so there, Section 14 thus explicitly guarantees that all the citizens, both black and white, have the constitutional right to bear arms. And Representative John Bingham believed that the Civil Rights Act protected the same right as enumerated in the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, which of course explicitly mentioned a right to keep and bear arms. So the unavoidable conclusion for him is that the Civil Rights Act, like the Freedmen's Bureau Act, aimed to protect, quote, the constitutional right to bear arms, end quote, and to not simply, as some people would claim, prohibit discrimination. Now, he notes that one of the core purposes of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, as well as of the 14th Amendment, 
was to redress the grievances of freedmen who had been stripped of their arms and to affirm what he called quote the full and equal right of every citizen to self-defense end quote Now, Congress, however, would ultimately deem these legislative remedies as being insufficient. This was because Southern resistance, presidential vetoes, and the court's pre-Civil War precedent persuaded Congress that a constitutional amendment would be necessary to provide a full protection for the rights of blacks. Now, today, it is generally accepted that the 14th Amendment was understood as providing a constitutional basis for protecting the rights specifically set out in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was an explicit guarantee of the rights of the Freedmen's Bureau Bill of 1866. And in debating the 14th Amendment, the 39th Congress referred to the right to keep and bear arms as a fundamental right deserving of protection. And in the congressional record, we find a speech that says, Every man should have the right to bear arms for the defense of himself and family and his homestead. And if the cabin door of the freedman is broken open and the intruder enters for the purpose as vile as were known to slavery, then should a well-loaded musket be in the hand of the occupant to send the polluted wretch to another world where his wretchedness will forever remain complete. And evidence from the period immediately following the ratification of the 14th Amendment only further confirms that the right to keep and bear arms was considered fundamental. For example, in an 1868 speech addressing the disarmament of freedmen, uh, Representative Stevens, by whom he means Representative Thaddeus Stevens, of course, emphasized the necessity of the right when he said, quote, disarm a community and you will rob them of the means of defending life. Take away their weapons of defense, and you will take away the inalienable right of defending liberty, end quote. He would go on to say that the 14th Amendment, now so happily adopted, settles the whole question. And it is here where, for me, things get even more interesting, because following the court's opinion in Heller, that recognized the right to keep and bear arms was indeed an individual right for lawful purposes such as self-defense and not constrained by active service in a militia. We saw an onslaught of cert petitions going to the Supreme Court seeking review of cases that would incorporate the Heller precedent as against the states through the 14th Amendment. Now, interestingly, McDonald v. Chicago was the only cert petition filed that I could identify that actually would seek review on incorporation through either substantive due process or, alternatively, by incorporating the right as a fundamental right according to the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Now, for whatever reason, the court would actually end up granting cert on McDonald, whose question presented read as follows. Whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is incorporated as against the states by the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities or due process clause. Now, this was remarkable 
because the petitioner in this case, Otis McDonald, uh, and his attorney, Alan Gura, were asking the court to overturn more than 130 years of precedent established by first the Slaughterhouse case in 1872, which held the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment is limited to federal citizenship rather than extending to state citizenship. And it would also require overturning United States v. Cruikshank, which held the right to keep and bear arms exists separately from the Constitution and is not solely based on the Second Amendment, which exists to prevent Congress from infringing the right. And so, unsurprisingly, uh, in McDonald, uh, the court would go on to decline the petitioner's invitation to uh, kick over that jurisprudential hornet's nest, really with only Clarence Thomas demonstrating the actual courage and principles at the time to brilliantly argue for the propriety of actually taking up this invitation to overturn those two cases that are so truly repugnant to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Now, in the McDonald case, it is still surprising to see, uh, for me at least when I go back and look at it, the volume of amicus briefs that were filed in that case in support of the petitioner, Otis McDonald, as well as to see the ideological diversity of the many amici behind those various briefs. Now, this includes one amicus brief that was filed as the Brief of Constitutional Law Professors as amici curiae in support of petitioner. So this brief was actually drafted by none other than Elizabeth Wydra and Douglas Kendall of the uh, Progressive Originalist Camp, who were also, of course, the founders of the Constitutional Accountability Center. And among the constitutional law scholars who would sign on as amici in support of Elizabeth and Douglas's brief, there were uh, several notable progressive originalists, including Akhil Lamar, Jack Balkin, and Michael Lawrence, as well as several very prominent original public meaning originalists, including Randy Barnett and Steve Calabresi, who are not only two of the country's most foremost original public meaning originalists, but two of my personal favorites as well. So I will link to the full amicus brief I am talking about here in the show notes page, and I do encourage everyone to go read it in its entirety, but I'm going to provide a summary of the argument, which goes as follows. They say, the textually and historically accurate way to determine if these states must respect an individual right to keep and bear arms is to examine the meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. They say that the amici submit to the court that the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause protected substantive fundamental rights against state infringement, including the constitutional right of an individual to keep and bear arms. Indeed, the framers of this clause specifically desired to protect the right to bear arms so that newly freed slaves and unionists would have the means to protect themselves, their families, and their property against well-armed former rebels and chose language whose meaning would accomplish that end. 
and they say reviving the privileges or immunities clause and limiting slaughterhouse to its progeny would bring this court's jurisprudence in line with constitutional text and a near unanimous scholarly consensus on the history and meaning of the clause. Slaughterhouse read the privileges or immunities clause so narrowly as to essentially read it out of the amendment, but according to Akhil Amar, quote, virtually no serious modern scholar, left, right, or center, thinks that this is a plausible reading of the amendment, end quote. Now, at this point, I want to shift our focus to talking about Katanji Brown-Jackson, and I have what I imagine may be a somewhat controversial suggestion here to make, and that is perhaps constitutional originalists should welcome her presence on the court. Now, I, I just hear me out here, because uh, what I contend is that if you are a truly principled originalist, you should see Katanji Brown Jackson's seat on the court as a good thing. I'm not saying it was a great thing, but it is a good thing. Because the important difference between Jackson and Justice Stephen Breyer, who she replaced on the bench, is that Breyer was a purposivist and a living constitutionalist. And similarly, the other liberal justices on the court, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan, are also purposivists and living constitutionalists. Now, this means that their decisions are always going to come down to them revising the meaning of the Constitution to serve whatever purpose and reach their policy outcome believed to be ideal. Whereas, with a progressive originalist such as Justice Jackson, it's true she may often reach the same conclusion as Kagan and Sotomayor, but on a number of occasions, she will actually find herself in agreement with the so-called conservative originalist justices in a way that Justice Breyer never did and Justice Kagan and Sotomayor never will. This is actually why last term, on a number of different occasions, we found Neil Gorsuch, one of the court's most principled originalists, coming together with Justice Jackson quite a bit in their court decisions, and especially in cases that involved the government claiming for itself some new and more expansive power. Now, Gorsuch and Jackson seem to both have an especially skeptical view of such claims of expanded power, which really is the most important issue we could possibly hope the court to take a definitive and defiant stand on. Now, we saw this, for example, in the case of Tyler v. Hennepin County, uh, which is the case that I have covered in past videos, you'll find linked on the show notes page. But just as a quick reminder, uh, this is the case that found that home equity theft was an unconstitutional taking under the Constitution's takings clause. Now, the court's unanimous decision in that case didn't clarify how that injury should be redressed, and they didn't speak to the second question presented, which asked if home equity theft was unconstitutional as well under the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause. Now, this vagueness in their opinion was likely due to the fact that home equity theft cases actually tend to split the court along uh, traditional conservative and liberal lines. With, generally speaking, the conservatives 
siding with the homeowner and property rights and the liberal justices siding with the government. And it is my belief, at least, that the vague ruling we got was the best one that his author, Chief Justice John Roberts, could have gotten and still got a unanimous agreement on as he did. However, Justice Gorsuch would pen a concurrence that would be joined only by Justice Jackson, where he went on to point out that the facts of the case strongly suggest that the court would have found the uh, home equity theft unconstitutional under the excessive fines clause as well had the court addressed that issue. Which uh, is important, actually, because that concurring opinion is going to be a persuasive precedent now that the case has been remanded back to the Seventh Circuit to decide how Tyler's case should be redressed. And it will continue to hold sway in similar future cases where this constitutional question is when the courts are being asked to take judicial notice of. Now, likewise, in the case of uh, Polselli v. Internal Revenue Service, the court would determine whether the IRS, pursuant to powers granted to it under Section 7609 of the Internal Revenue Code, is entitled to issue a third-party summons without notice for bank account records in which the taxpayer targeted by the summons does not have a legal interest. Now, the court would find that Section 7609 does grant the IRS power to issue such a summons, but Justice Jackson wrote separately in an opinion joined only by Justice Gorsuch, clarifying their ability to issue these no-notice summons is a limited authority and that such notices are important because it allows the target of the summons to exercise procedural protections especially their ability to file a motion to quash. They pointed out that when you take this away, you are limiting a taxpayer's ability to stop the IRS from obtaining third-party records, which necessarily is an infringement of the rights of the taxpayers, both to proper notice and to process. And in another case, Bittner v. United States, uh, this was a case where the court would rein in federal fines for taxpayers who fail to report foreign bank accounts. Justice Gorsuch would author a very typical Justice Gorsuch opinion in a case that would deal with uh, issues of criminal justice and administrative state, and this is a case that dealt with both. Which is to say that he gave a very narrow textualist reading to the Banking Secrecy Act that severely limited the power of the administrative state to give and also sought to give a strong protection to criminal defendants under that act. Now, while most of the justices who joined Gorsuch's majority opinion, who include Chief Justice Roberts, as well as Associate Justices Kavanaugh and Alito, would join Gorsuch's majority only in part, there was only one person on the court who would join his opinion in full, and that was none other than Justice Jackson. Now, she was the only member of the court to join Part 3 of Gorsuch's majority opinion. Now here, Justice Gorsuch noted that under the rules of lenity, statutes imposing penalties are to be construed strictly against the government in favor of individuals. And a quick reminder for those who 
may not remember the rule of lenity, is a principle of criminal statutory interpretation that requires that when a law is unclear or ambiguous, a court must apply the law in the manner that is most favorable to the defendant. Now, this doctrine has a long history in the common law where it traditionally has great importance. Unfortunately, its role in modern jurisprudence seemed to be getting far less clear and less common, and any decisive invocation of the rule of lenity, such as we have found in the Bittner cases, to me, always a very welcome occurrence. And it is precisely this willingness to take a principled stand with Justice Gorsuch that is part of what I was talking about earlier when I said that I believe Justice Jackson will likely have an outsized influence on the court. Now, I want to remind you all that a frequent thing that I point out on this channel here is that we do not, as almost everyone will claim, have a 6-3 conservative majority on the court. What we have in reality is an even 3-3-3 split. Now, this uh, consists of the principled originalist faction of Justices Thomas Gorsuch and Alito and the less principled and pseudo-conservative faction of Chief Justice Roberts, as well as Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, and of course the liberal faction of Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson. Now, currently, we have Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, who are not originalists, but who will be inclined to sometimes throw their support behind the actual originalist faction. And we also, of course, have Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is a progressive originalist, which means, as I've demonstrated, that she is occasionally willing to side with the actual originalist faction of the court. And this creates a situation in which it is much more likely that a split vote on the court will result in a solid five votes along originalist lines. And this is something that you simply never saw when Justice Breyer was still on the court. Now, usually compromise votes and split decisions in the last few years up till uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson joining the court had tended to ended up coming out in favor of either the middling pseudo-conservative faction of Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, or the liberal faction of then Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Now, I realize that many people are probably going to be annoyed by my give Justice Jackson a chance pitch, because I'm sure plenty of people will argue that she was Biden's appointee, and Biden is awful, which isn't incorrect. But I would like to remind anyone who is saying that, that what you are doing is the very same thing that the left did with Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. They just completely wrote those justices off as terrible people solely because they were appointed by Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is awful. And what is so interesting is that when uh, that Trump supporters understood how stupid and pointless that criticism was when it was happening to their own guy. So, if you're a Trump supporter and you want to cast judgments on someone using the same criteria, you are, of course, free to do so. But just understand that all you are doing is merely adapting and adopting a leftist tactic and talking point. And I'm also sure that some of you will be annoyed with me for other reasons, such as pointing out 
that Justice Jackson wouldn't define what a woman was during her confirmation hearing, which, as I pointed out in my Jackson confirmation video, was, of course, a stupid answer on her part. However, it was an even stupider question, since that was a strictly partisan political talking point by Republicans to try to make her look foolish, even though the simple fact is that question had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with her qualifications as a judge. And by asking that question, Senator Blackford, I contend, looked even more foolish than Justice Jackson. And furthermore, by spending the next two days after that constantly berating her for her answer, conservatives like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley look even more foolish than Senator Blackburn. The fact is, it is just absolutely pathetic to see people like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, and Tom Cotton, who always complain about conservative appointees to federal courts, always getting borked. During their confirmation hearings, only to have them turn around and waste everyone's time by borking. A Democratic nominee. Now, just real quick for those of you who maybe don't remember, a borking is a term that came about uh, as a result of the confirmation hearings of Justice Robert Bork uh, back in the 80s when his chances to go on the court were sunk by a very uh, partisan political attack, mostly by Ted Kennedy. And so the definition of a borking that I have drawn up before here is to one, to disrespect or vilify a public figure, especially in order to obstruct a person's appointment to public office, or two, to attack a candidate or public figure systematically, especially in the media. Now, many people, as I said, uh, like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, uh, will claim stupid things that because, for example, Justice Jackson was once a public defender, that means that she is, quote, rooting for murderers and criminals, end quote. And yes, Ted Cruz really fucking said that. Now, he did that rather than using his time to ask her meaningful and substantive questions that might actually be helpful in determining whether or not she was a qualified candidate for the position that she was being nominated to. Really, my point here is that, uh, look, there are plenty of reasonable reasons to be critical of Katanji Brown-Jackson. But what I would contend here today is that her replacement of Justice Stephen Breyer was a net good for the court. And I would also argue that pretty much any other candidate we would have gotten from Joe Biden would have not been a progressive originalist, but would have been a purposivist or a living constitutionalist. Therefore, I would say that ending up with a progressive originalist such as Jackson was the best outcome that we could have hoped for. Well, that is all I have for you guys here today on Legalese. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, now, don't forget to go check out our homepage over at LegalEasePodcast.com. Subscribe to the newsletter at LegalEaseShow.com. And if you would take a moment and do all of those things that help to trigger 
Al Gore's rhythm, I would greatly appreciate it. You know, if you liked it, hit the like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about the video. Uh, subscribe to the channel here on YouTube. All of those things. And if you would do that for me, I would greatly appreciate it. And until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese talking about regressive originalism. And of course, as always, Cartago de Lenta Est. Motherfucker